Let's take our Bible tonight, make your way to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and uh, we're going to be continuing. We've been looking through this book um, verse by verse, expositionally, taking one section at a time and uh, trying to learn and glean what God has for us through the man Solomon who penned it and, uh, or wrote it. Um, maybe he didn't pen it, maybe somebody recorded it, we're not sure, uh, but uh, most likely it is attributed to Solomon. And uh, we're going to pick up in verse number 9. Verse number 9, we're going to come down through verse 15. And the title of the lesson tonight is God's Sovereignty Over Life's Seasons. God's Sovereignty Over Life's Seasons. And uh, you'll see how this ties into our text from last week. It all flows together, uh, beginning in verse number 1, and we come down through verse 15. Uh, But verse 9 through 15, we'll kind of dive into what Solomon says as a result of what he said in verse 1 through 8. And I pray this would encourage us and give us great comfort Uh, and confidence as well as we enter the many seasons of life that we have in life under the sun. So uh, Ecclesiastes 3, 9 through 15, notice that he writes, What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. You know, as we look at life itself and the text before us, life is full of many seasons with varying experiences. Some of those experiences may be enjoyable and easy and uh, somewhat uh, happy times, and then there's other experiences that are painful, hard, and Uh, difficult to go through. Then there's some experiences that may just be in between. It's not really happy, not really sorrowful, but it's basically the routine of life and uh, we continue going on day by day. But no matter what season or time of life you find yourself in, it is common to all people, albeit with maybe varying differences. All of us experience the various seasons of life that we find in Scripture here. And so what are we to think of all the seasons of life that we experience? How are we to view them and go through them? Well, Solomon here is the wise man who has penned and given this text before us. He gives us some insight into the seasons or realities of life. And we need to recall verse 1 through 8 briefly just to understand what's going on here. You remember verse 1, he opens up and what's he say here? He says, for everything there's a season. And a time for every matter under heaven. That really just summarizes all that he says in this poem. He writes a poem in verse 1 through 8 of these these parallels or contrasts, if you would. These uh, positive negatives. He gives us these sayings like birth and death. Really, that's the bookends, right? Of life. Birth and death. Everything happens in between it. Uh, Planting and uprooting. Building and tearing down. Weeping and laughing. And so forth. And so, uh, all of these realities and the others, all of us experience them. And we're going to continue to experience them throughout history, so long as 
Time continues. That's how man is going to live his life in this world. Now, when we evaluate all these seasons of life and experience them, they often can be very frustrating to us in our humanity, can't they? They often can be confusing, perplexing, uh, maybe even appear pointless to our minds. How many of us have ever experienced a valley or trial and wondered, well, how long am I going to be here and why am I here? Why am I going through this at this time? How many of us have ever experienced a mountaintop of joy and victory and thought, man, this is great, but I wonder how long it's going to last? You see, we have seasons of life that we go through. And that was Solomon's trouble in his own evaluation through this book, his frustration. You remember the opening to the book. What did he say about life? He said, all is vanity. All is vanity, a chasing after the wind. But Solomon doesn't stop just at verse 8 just to leave us with this never-ending cycle of back-and-forth experiences. He wants us really to see the main point of life under the sun. And this next text gives us clarity to what Solomon describes about the seasons of life and the experiences that we go through. So uh, I've laid out this text in three points for us that I hope will encompass what's being said in this text. And notice with me in number one tonight, I want you to see the sovereignty of God over time. The sovereignty of God over time. Now, after all, what did we see throughout the previous passage? There's a time for this and a time for that. And God has appointed a time for all of these seasons and experiences. But notice with me as we look at these together, God's purposes are often perplexing. They're often perplexing or mysterious to us, right? That's what we see in verse 1 through 8. He summarizes what we do in time. And given the frustration of some of those things that we do and the end result of everything, the question we all ask is, what's it all for? It's all for what? What's the end of all this, right? And so Solomon, he asks the question in verse 9, what gain has the worker from his toil? Does that question sound familiar to us at all? Have we seen it yet in the book of Ecclesiastes? We have, haven't we? Chapter 1, he, he asked that same question in verse 2 through 3, except with this context, he says, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then he asks that same question. What does man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? What is the true profit or gain from all that we do and experience in this world. And Solomon answered this practically in the last chapter when he gave an in-depth experiential look at partaking in pleasures and profit and, 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 and all of the things that he could have gained. So the, rhetorical, the answer to this rhetorical question from Solomon is once again, nothing. What does man gain from all his toil and life in this world? After all these experiences, this back and forth, nothing. We gain nothing in all the cycles and seasons of life that we go through. Now, through this passage in verse 1 through 8, Solomon presented to us 14 pluses and 14 minuses. Now, what is 14 minus 14? What's that equal? Nothing. <laughs> nothing. Jubilee's learning math. She should know that. She's learning addition and subtraction and... A little bit of this, a little bit of that. 14 minus 14 is nothing. You, you see, the seasons and experiences of life uh, seem to have no net gain in the big picture of life, right? Now, Solomon again repeats himself in verse 10. He says, I have seen the business 
that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. This business is the toil and labor of life in this sin-cursed world. It's really a callback to what God said to Adam after sin came into the world, that in the sweat of his face that he would work, and he's going to toil the ground. There's going to be thistles and thorns, and it would be burdensome. It would be wearisome to bring about the fruit of his labor. And this is the frustrating truth of the previous passage about time for everything because it reveals to us the sad reality of life in a fallen world, a life where a world where paradise has been lost. It's no longer Eden anymore. It's no longer in the beginning. It's not that anymore. You see, in Eden, it was not like that. But now we are in a sin-cursed world. But what does all this mean? Does it mean that all these experiences of life are without purpose at all? No, it doesn't does not mean that. In fact, the message that we are meant to see here is that there is purpose in all the seasons of life because God is sovereign over all the seasons of life. You see, if God was not in control of all seasons of life, then yes, there would be no point or rhyme or reason to anything. But the very fact that God is in in control, that He is sovereign, gives purpose and reason to all aspects of life that we are experiencing as his people. You see, the vanity of life in this world and the perplexing experiences that we go through, here's what it does for Solomon. It points Solomon's heart to the one person who is eternally the same and has everything in the sovereign control of his hand. That person is the one true God. And here's where we find the real meaning and point of life. It is that God is at the center of it all. He is at the centerpiece. So that leads me to another, number, a second aspect of this. Letter B, I want you to see that God's purposes are always perfect. God's purposes are always perfect. Now here's where we come to verse 11, and we see somewhat some, of some positive words to us about what happens in this world. In verse 11, what does he say? He has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, that's a well-known statement. It's uh, quoted even among our secular world, even though they probably don't really realize what they're saying with it. But it's quoted and it's well-known, especially among Christians. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Now, doesn't that sound so much better than all his vanity and vexation of spirit? Everything's beautiful in its time. Now, this language tends to point us back to the creation in which God brought forth everything, right? When God brought forth everything, what did he say about it? He looked at everything that he had made and he said, Behold, it is very good. And it was very good in the very beginning, right? It was perfect creation. And so certainly everything that God created is good and has purpose, even those things that we may not quite understand why they're even here or why they even happen, right? The other day, Jubilee was asking me um, about a certain animal or a bug. It was an ugly bug or an annoying bug or something of that nature. And her question was, why did God even make that? (laughs) Have you ever thought about that? You know, you look at some creature, you think, what? What's God's purpose for this? I mean, every time I smell a skunk, I I think, Lord, why did you make those things? You know, they stink. What's their purpose? What do they do, right? What do they do? But here's the reality. You can rest assured in this, that even the ugliest, stinkiest creatures in this world, God designed for a reason. He created them with purpose and meaning. 
uh, and, and even beauty in his sight. And so as we look at this, we look at this phrase, he has made everything beautiful in its time. That can link us to the creation of all things. But it also applies to everything that the Lord has done since the creation. Everything that's happened in history, the seasons of life, and how the world functions, and what happens in this world. You see, this Hebrew word for beautiful, it essentially refers to that which is right, that which is pleasant. Some translations render this as that which is appropriate. Everything is made appropriate in its time. Now, God's timing may be confusing and frustrating to us in some of the seasons that we go through, but here's what you got to understand. Even though it may be confusing and frustrating to us, it is perfect in its timing. It is still beautiful and appropriate in its timing. You know why? Because God is sovereign over everything. God is never late, and He's also never early. So so you understand that what happens, what we experience, happens when it's supposed to happen. That's how life is, because we have a God who's in control. Every millisecond of the history of this world flows according to God's purposes. This means that all that Solomon described in the previous poem happens in our life at God's appointed time, our birth, our death. Times we're joyful, times we're sorrowful, times we plant, times that we pluck up. All these things, I mean, think about it. After all, did you choose the time in which you were going to go into your hardship and trial? No, you didn't. Did you choose the time in which you were going to come out of it into a mountaintop of victory and joy? No, you didn't. You see how life is out of our control. I like to think that I have control. I want to be in control. It's my human nature, right? But what Solomon is showing us is that you really don't have any control. It's not in our control to govern the seasons of this life and what happens and when it happens. You see the picture here because God's sovereignty is extensive into all things. Take the words of Job for a moment. Now, when we read Job and what he's talking about, what season of life is Job going through? He's going through a hardship that probably none of us have ever gone through. Lost all of his kids, all of his wealth, all of his health. His wife has turned against him, saying, curse God and die and just let it be done. He's got friends who are giving him this bad advice and nagging him to death. And he he says, you all are miserable fellows. And what's Job's perspective? What's he say during this season of his life? Here's what he says in Job 42.2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job understands who's really in control and has all power over all things. And he says, God, there's no purpose of yours that can be thwarted or altered or changed. One commentator said this, Works of providence as works of creation may begin in a chaos and seem without form and void. But they end up, they end in admirable order and beauty. Just like in the beginning of the creation account, what do you see in Genesis 1, 1, and 2? The earth was without form. It was dark. The Spirit moved across the face of the deep. 
And what did God do? He took that which was formless and dark and made it into what is beautiful, our creation today. That's how he ordered our creation. You see, the ups and downs of life are under the sovereign purposes of God. And so we are to view life in this world with all of its ups, all of its downs, all of its mountaintops and valleys, its joys and sorrows, from the perspective of our heavenly God, our holy God. Now listen to this reminder from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 55, go with, there, go with me there to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 55 and verse 8 through 9. And notice this with me, these two verses that are great to have in our minds when it comes to things that we don't understand, or might even be frustrated about. You notice what he says in verse 8 and 9. He says, God is speaking through the prophet, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me feel really, 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 really small. Because God's thoughts are infinitely higher than mine, and His ways are infinitely higher than mine. And what He's saying in the context of this passage, if you read this passage, what's He saying? In context, God's calling the wicked to seek Him, and that they may be pardoned. Now, that may seem upside down when you look at the wicked, right? Why pardon the wicked? Why not just execute your justice, Lord, and and wipe them out? But instead, what do we find is that he's giving an invitation, seek pardon while it may be found. And this is where we find that God doesn't always operate the way we operate. Now, it would have been right and holy, and he could have done it and still been loving and perfect to just eliminate and eradicate all of us in his justice. But what did he choose to do? He chose to save a people to himself in long-suffering and grace and patience. And so God says, my ways aren't your ways. I don't, I don't think like you. I, th- I think sometimes we think God should think like us. You ever had that? Sometimes we think that other people should think like us. You've been driving down the road, and you think, what's this, what's this dude doing in the slow, rain, slow lane? Get over, right? He should be thinking like me. Sometimes we think God should be thinking like us, but he don't do that. You know why he doesn't do that? Because he's God. We're not. He's infinite and we're finite. He's beyond us and we are, we, 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 are, we are very small. That principle applies to everything else that we don't understand in life. Often we are frustrated by the seasons of life because we can't see the bigger picture. You know, you imagine being given a, a 10,000 piece jigsaw puzzle. and You have to put it together. Jubilee loves doing jig, jigsaw puzzles and she gets that from her mama. She, she loves doing those too. And uh, with a jigsaw puzzle, you know, it's, it's easier to do it when you got the big picture on the box, right? And you can try, start doing the edges, and then you start trying to fill in the pieces. But imagine you've got this big puzzle with no picture, and you really can't see the edges. See, see this, is, this is the reality of all of life and all of history, from the beginning of creation to the end of creation, and even our life, from the beginning of our birth to the, our death, There's a bigger picture in play that you and I can't see. And guess what? I don't have control of the pieces, and I also can't see the picture. All of that is in the hand of Almighty God. Every single piece. And guess what, Christian? God always puts the pieces in the exact right place. And he puts them in the exact right place at the exact right time, doesn't he? 
The Lord always does and always allows what is appropriate at the right time. And so the overarching point is that all that we looked at in verse 1 through 8 that happens in life, it is ordained by the sovereign God for a bigger purpose and bigger plan. This one true God, the one true God, is in control of literally everything. There's not one microscopic atom that is outside of the realm of his sovereignty. Because God is either sovereign over all or he's not sovereign at all. That's really what it boils down to. We see his sovereignty through the scriptures over the big things and the little things. Remember what Jesus said when you're talking about being anxious about provision, things that you have need of in your life. He said in Matthew 10, 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Now, how small and insignificant is it that a bird falls to the ground? Do you really care about that? I mean, I don't, right? Every now and then you'll see one. And had one hit the glass not too long ago. Poor thing died. Don't wish that, but birds die every day. What's, what's Jesus say? There's not one sparrow that falls to the ground apart from the Father. That's a small, insignificant thing that he's sovereign over. But then he's also sovereign of the bigger things of this world. Daniel said of the Lord in Daniel 2.21, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. What, now think about this. How big a matter is it of the changing of the seasons? That's obviously major, right, in our world. But also the changing of the rulers of kings and nations. Or the outrage when... An election doesn't go the way we wish it would go. We don't have control over that, do we? The ultimate charge over that is who? God. And that is a major thing. God is sovereign over the big things. And so this is what Solomon is getting to our point. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He is the one who has appointed these things. And you'll see his sovereignty tied in at the end of this passage, verse 14 and 15 as well. But notice with the letter C too, because this ties into us. Mankind, is that God's purposes, God's purposes are universally perceived, universally perceived. Now, when I say that, when I say that his purposes are perceived, I do not mean that they are understood. What I mean by that is that there is an awareness, a consciousness in mankind of God and his work. Now, notice verse 11. What does he say? Also, Solomon says, also, he, being God, has put eternity into man's heart. He's put eternity into man's heart. Now, what's that mean? What's he mean by eternity? The world eternity is it's sometimes, sometimes translated as world. But the Hebrew word here is most often translated elsewhere in the Old Testament as forever. In fact, the same word here is translated that way in verse 14 as forever. The word carries more than just the concept of time in this world, but time beyond this world. It literally means a long time, a long duration in reference to that which is eternal. You see, there is an inherent knowledge in man that there is more to this world than just this world. God has given every man a conscience that is wired with an awareness of his person and his law to some degree. 
Now, let me, let me turn with you to Romans 1. We'll look at that together. Here's where Paul makes this plain revelation to us. Romans, Romans chapter 1. If you look at verse number 18 through 20, you see this. You notice that Paul writes and says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Verse 20, For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So, so what's the argument Paul brings out here? He's bringing out to us, All of mankind, no matter where they are, they're without excuse because creation itself testifies the divine nature and attributes of God to them. What does he say about these people? He says that they, in their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. They push it down. They push it back. They refuse to take it in fully. That's the depraved nature of man, right? He naturally does not run towards God. What does he do? He naturally runs away from God. That's what we do in our nature. You see, the unregenerate people have willfully suppressed the revelation of God, both in the special revelation of the Scriptures, but also the natural revelation of creation. You see, God's special revelation in His Word makes mankind even more accountable to Him for their rejection of Him. But the bottom line is that those who reject and refuse God, they do so willfully. Willfully they do this. David said in Psalm 14, 1, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The fool says there's no God. If you look at the original language there, there's some italics in most of your translations, but the literal rendering there is the fool says no God. means he doesn't want God. He does not want God. Now, now Solomon has plainly set before us that God's person and purposes are interwoven into our created being. And this is clearly evidenced even in pagan cultures and religions around the world. If you look at the various pagan cultures and religions around the world, they all have this concept of a deity, this concept of afterlife, don't they? Where does that come from? Where does that come from? tree didn't give it to them, right? They didn't get it from somewhere else. It's ingrained in our own nature by creation, that there is a divine being and creator. It's like Paul when he was in Athens. They had all these different gods set up, and then they've got one to this unknown God, just in case they missed one, right? And Paul says, let me tell you about this one unknown God. He's actually the only one true God, the creator of heaven and earth, the real one that you need. That's exactly what we find. We can see it in cultures around the world. It's interwoven into the fabric of man's being that there is a God and more beyond this world. As Solomon says, he's put eternity in a man's heart. 
Our lives are linked to time and eternity. And here's what we see with God's purposes being perceived but not understood. Notice that Solomon says next, yet, even though he's put eternity into man's heart, he says, yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Though man has a sense of God's creative purpose and eternity beyond this world, he does not understand it, or can he, nor can he figure out all that God has done and is doing. Not everything is revealed to us, is it? You see, the word find here, or find out, has the sense of figure out or comprehend by study in this verse as well as other verses in this book. And so Solomon here, he realizes that both his desire to understand all of life as well as the limitations on his ability to do so, they have been ordained by God. You see, God sovereignly set in place everything in this world. All that Solomon wrote of in this previous poem is under God's wise ordaining counsel. Man is aware of the way life in this world works and that this world is not all there is. But certainly that's not enough, right? It's not just natural revelation that man needs in order to know the one true God. What does he need? He needs the truth of the one true God. The special divine revelation that we have in the scriptures and the gospel. Because how is it that man is saved? Why is it that we go to the nations, to the pagan cultures, to the false religions of the world? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. That's the reason we go. So God's sovereignty over time must lead us like Solomon to this next exhortation. Notice with me number two. We see the satisfaction in God in time for us. We see the sovereignty of God over time, but now we see the satisfaction in God in time that is applied to us. In Ecclesiastes chapter number 3, you'll notice verse 12, he says, I perceive, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than that they be joyful and do good as long as they live and that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Two things I want to point out in these verses. One, that we should seek to be happy in God. Seek to be happy or joyful in God. That's that's what this really is about. You'll notice, connected in all of what he says here, verse 13, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. You see, rather than becoming embittered by what God has not given us, which is a full understanding of all that we're experiencing and all that we go through, instead, rather, we are to enjoy the gifts that God has given us in life. No matter what season he has ordained us to be in at any point in time. After all, all that we receive is indeed a gift from God, isn't it? very breath that you're breathing right now, that's the gift of God. The meal that you had or you're going to have after this service, probably Freddy's or somewhere else, right? It's the gift of God. Every good gift and every perfect gift is where? From above. But notice who it comes down from. It comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Everything that we get comes from a God who is immutable. A God who doesn't change. Though seasons of life change and things in this world change, the 
God who is over it all doesn't change. The God who gives us what we get to enjoy does not change. I'm thankful we have a God that don't change. His immutability is a comfort to me. Security to me. See, even when we are at a low point in life, there is much to enjoy with the right perspective of God's sovereignty, isn't there? The daily mercies that you have, you still have clothing on your back, roof over your head, food and water to drink. You still have family in your life. There's so much that you still have to enjoy, though you may be in a valley instead of a mountaintop. This is where perspective plays such a major role to our life. If you'll notice in 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul had this kind of perspective in his own affliction and suffering. He said, for this light, momentary affliction. I think that's interesting because he describes a lot of things that I've never experienced. Being stoned and left for dead and persecuted. He says, this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we, not, not, as we look not at the things that are seen, but are the things which are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Perspective makes all the difference in the world in our life. And all of this really points us to the fact that only the believer in Christ, the one who truly knows God and fears God, can live life in such a way of joy and delight through all the seasons of life. So why is that? Because faith is really the root of true joy and happiness. Faith in the one true God, because God is the source of joy. God is the source of our joy. Now, when we think of happiness, there's a lot of people that have happiness in this life, but happiness largely depends on what happens. It's circumstantial. Joy is not circumstantial. Joy is fixed in who God is and who you are in Christ. The fact that he is what satisfies you. It's as Augustine rightly said this, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We are made for God. And there is no satisfaction, true satisfaction in this life outside of Christ. Christ is everything to us. True happiness and the enjoying is enjoying the gifts of God in life while resting in God's sovereignty over your life. That means in whatever season of life you're going through, enjoy it in God. Take note of the little things that you have from Him and can do unto Him. Enjoy what you have in life. Spend time with your family and enjoy it. Eat a good meal and enjoy it. Eat some good dessert and enjoy it. Take up a hobby and enjoy it. We're not meant to go through our life miserable and depressed. And We're meant to enjoy life to the glory of God. Not in a sinful manner, but in a manner in which we enjoy God's gifts that He's given us. You notice that Solomon says, there is nothing better Nothing better than to be joyful and to take pleasure in your toil. Enjoy your life. You've only got a short one. You don't want the shortness of your life to be miserable, always discouraged and depressed about everything that goes wrong. Things are just going to go wrong. The point is trusting God's sovereignty and still enjoying life despite that. 
I think God was testing me with that just a little bit, even tonight. You're lucky you got a handout. You know, you know where I'm going. Technology is a blessing and a curse. You'll notice that I'm usually up here with an iPad, but I'm using, hand, you know, printed notes. Thankfully, I printed these just in time because as soon as I tried to transfer that file to my iPad, it locked up. Couldn't open the file at all. Tried everything. It's like, oh, man. You know what first came to mind? Why did this have to happen? The very thing I'm studying and getting ready to preach to you about comes to my brain. Why did this have to happen? And then it clicked with me. God's providence is over even this really small little thing. It's such a tiny thing, but it's providential. I said, okay, God, I guess it's your will to use these handwritten notes or these, these printed notes. And I said, Lord, thank you that I got these printed in time. Otherwise, I was going to be preaching from the handout you're using. See, as a Christian, we can truly enjoy all of life because we know, we know that we are safe in the sovereign hands of God no matter what we're going through. And that's where true satisfaction in life is really Letter B, notice that we should seek to be holy in God. This is about satisfaction. And I want you to understand that holiness is happiness when it comes to life. A lot of people look at holiness, well, that's just that's legalistic stuff. That means I can't have fun and go do this and that. No, friend. For the Christian, holiness means you seek to do what is good and please God. And when you do what is good and please God, that is where your happiness rests. Because a Christian who's living in sin and doing the wrong things, if they're a Christian... They ain't happy. And you can pretend to push that off and think you're doing well and, oh, I love life. I want you to understand something. If you're living in sin and you have no problem with it, that's a bad sign of your spiritual condition. Very bad sign of your spiritual condition. You may need to be born again. Because we grieve the Spirit when we live in sin. But when we live as we ought to live, there is joy and satisfaction. You notice verse 12, what does he say? Not only about enjoyment, but he says also do good as long as they live. Do good as long as they live. Now, this truly is how man should live in this world, right? He should do good in his life. But what does Solomon mean by doing good? Well, it means exactly what he says. It refers to doing what is morally right and pleasing to God. That's what doing good is. Psalm 34, 14 says, Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. That's how man is supposed to live. But does man live that way in this world? No, he doesn't. Natural man doesn't. Romans 3.12, Paul said, All have turned aside. Together they have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. What's this show us, Christian? It shows us yet again that only the believer, changed by the gospel of Christ, can live the life they are supposed to live to the glory of God. Christ is everything to life. All of this hinges upon Christ and the gospel. See, though we may not understand all that happens in life, why it happens, the call upon God's people is to trust and obey. We sing a beautiful hymn that has lyrics like that, don't we? Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be what? Happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. You see, we aren't to burden our minds and hearts with what we don't understand or what we can't see. I gave you this text last week, but I'll quote it again. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to who? The Lord our God. But the things that are revealed, what's revealed? 
what's revealed is word. Things that are revealed belong to us and to our children that we may do all the words of his law. You see, our call in life under the sun is to trust the sovereign Lord and to do as he has commanded. And when we do this, when we're walking with Christ and we're abiding in him for his glory, you understand that is when joy is truly full, as John 15, 11 tells us. Jesus said that to his disciples about abiding in him. He said, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. God wants his people to live a life full of his joy. What a wonderful life of satisfaction we have in Christ when we trust his sovereignty and live for his glory. Notice with me number three, and lastly, we see the security of God with time, or you could also say the settlement of God with time meaning that what God has ordained and purposed, it is fixed, it is settled, it is secure. And really, the security of his sovereignty and what he does is a comfort to me because he really is in control. Two things briefly. God, God's works are fixed for his purposes. You look at verse 14, notice what he says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken away from it. You understand no person or power can change what God ordains, what he has set in motion in this world. All that God does is permanently fixed by his wise counsel and according to his pleasure. David said, God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases, Psalm 115.3. He said also in Psalm 33.11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the Plans of his heart to all generations. So there is no changing what God has ordained. He has already set in place the perfect timing for every event under the sun. Ecclesiastes basically gives us the same answer that Jesus gave his disciples when they're asking about timing of things. Acts 1.7, he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. So Solomon continues this in verse 15. That which has already been, that is that that which is has already been, and that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. So this basically ties into chapter 1 and verse 9, where he says that there's nothing new under the sun. The future is as certain as the past. And what God seeks after, literally, God seeks what has been sought. It declares God's consistency. And immutability, his standards are never changing and nothing escapes his sovereignty. And ultimately, when it comes to all of this, God in his infinite wisdom and power is working all things for his glory and for the good of his people. Romans eleven thirty three through 36 encompasses the whole of this, and I'll read it briefly. You probably get tired of me going to this passage, but it's a, a theme here. It is one that is central to the whole of the Bible and the whole of our life, the whole of the gospel itself. As Paul gives this beautiful, glorious doxology, this utterance of praise and worship, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given him a gift to him? that he might be repaid, for from him and through him and to him are all things. 
him be glory forever. And all of God's people say amen to that. Charles Bridges comments here, the full beauty of the work from the beginning to the end is only known to the great director who sees the end from the beginning. We can neither unravel the thread of his counsels nor grasp the infinite perfection of his work. And lastly tonight, notice that God's works, letter B, are faithful to his purposes. They are fixed in his purposes, but they are also faithful to his purposes. When we look at how God works in the world and what is the end of it all, of his sovereignty, verse 14, here's what Solomon says, and I skipped over it a minute ago for this purpose. He says, God has done it so that, what? People fear before him. God has done it so that people fear before him. And this truly is the ultimate end for what God does. It is that he may be feared and glorified in the earth. These are God's works and providence in time and history for a greater purpose. And though they may not be seen immediately by us, our lack of control and understanding must provoke us to fear him and bow before him in great awe because in the end the bigger picture is eventually going to be seen and in the bigger picture you're going to see how God has woven everything together he's woven everything together for his glory and for your good Martin Lord Jones comments and says what God is permitting in this world today is related to his great purpose for his own church and his to understand that God is working in these ways. So what's the lesson we take away from this? God is sovereign over everything in life under the sun, every season. He alone has orchestrated the bigger picture that we cannot see. And our call as God's people is to rest in his sovereignty, to trust him with what we don't understand, and to enjoy life in him. To enjoy life in him and to glorify him. By faith. So I pray that these, have, these truths have been an encouragement to you and they've challenged you in your walk with God. Maybe they've encouraged you through this point in your life. I don't know what everybody goes through and when they go through it, but I do know that uh, we all go through the same things eventually in various ways. And God's sovereignty is the great comfort that we can rest in for all those things.